I invite each of you to turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 7, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, the Gospel that we have been traversing through for some time. We'll leave it at that. But we are in chapter 7. As I, as we were away, uh, we were attending church most of the time, obviously, so we didn't watch on with the exception of last Lord's Day evening. And we uh, went to a morning service and then uh, we watched on in the evening time. And you see things that you don't normally see, at least I don't normally see. It may be that I don't pay a whole lot of attention whenever I'm up here worshipping, thinking about preaching and so on. But, uh, of course, there's some individuals I can't see from there anyway. And yet, with one of the angles on the camera, it's, uh, it's funny to see the little things that people do as they prepare to worship. Uh, I'll mention just one. And uh, it was Dr. Matsko. As he prepares to play the violin, he's putting the fingering of his the whole time he's going through the tune. I don't know exactly all you're doing, but it looks like he's going through the tune with the fingering the whole time. Dr. Dunbar's in the organ or whatever playing a completely different tune, but he has a tune in his head. I think that he's just getting prepared to play. And uh, I've never seen that before until last Lord's Day evening. So be aware you're being watched. Um, in this case, it's very innocent, but other times it might not be. Luke chapter 7. We're going to read the opening ten verses. As I said this morning, dealing with the centurion with his burden for his servant. And so let's hear the word of God as we have it before us in the scriptures in Luke chapter seven, verse one. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, Having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Amen. Let's still 
ourselves before the Lord again as we pray for the Lord's blessing upon His infallible Word. Our gracious God, how we thank Thee for the blessing of worship with Thy people. Lord, I ask that Thou would ever protect it and help us to treasure it. I pray it would never be a dull, faithless experience to gather in this place with Thy people. But, O oh, Father, that Thou wilt give to every heart the joy of the praise of Thy name. Tonight, Lord, with Thy word open before us, it is our desire that we would hear from Thee. May there be a word of instruction, guidance, help to Thy people. Whatever the need of this hour is, we pray that need may be met. And should there be in our midst an unbelieving heart, one still without Christ, one still rejecting thy mercy, we pray tonight may be a life-changing and memorable occasion for them. Give help, give the Holy Ghost, and exalt Christ in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Having completed his account of the sermon on the plain as it is known, Luke brings into focus now an event that took place in the city of Capernaum, a town not far from his hometown of Nazareth. Back in Luke chapter 4, when Christ was rejected in Nazareth, and Luke gave us that account, The people there said to him early on before they tried to kill him in Luke 4, 23, Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also hear in thy country. And while Luke had not detailed any of the events that Christ had performed in Capernaum prior to his visit to Nazareth, clearly by their words, by their language, he had been there and had done certain things, no doubt miracles, of a certain sort that were getting the buzz of the people and causing people to talk about what was going on, and they desired him to do the same in Nazareth as well. Now he's back in Capernaum, returns to the same place where he had been, and as I thought about that, from the outset, the challenge of Christ returning to a place to visit a people and address them again. Think of the number of times you hear from the Lord. Think of the occasions that He comes to you by His Word and Spirit to address your heart. His repeated visits. None of us are worthy of even one visit from Christ. And for Him to go to Capernaum again and again and again is a reminder of how He graciously comes by our way. I believe every Lord's Day, as we assemble here, He comes by, He addresses hearts. For those with the humility that are able to receive His Word, they hear from Him, they receive His grace, they are encouraged, they are blessed, they get what they need for their souls. And I wonder, do you receive it? I wonder, as others receive the blessing, do you receive that blessing or do you miss out? 
Are you like, as we discover later on in Capernaum, many that Christ was there before, performing His miracles, speaking His word, failed to lay hold upon the privilege and the blessing of His presence in their midst? What a tragedy. Now, he comes to the home of Aurelises, moving in the direction and the scene surrounds an event that has at the heart a centurion, a Roman centurion. And going back as far as Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we learn that the history being covered by Luke is a period when Rome's empire stretched across, across much of the known world. And not much has changed from the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to the time of his baptism and his ministry among the people. Still, the Roman Empire is strong and over Israel, and they are very much the controlling power politically. And we're reduced, as I've said, to a centurion, a man that was designated to be there in that northern region in Galilee, and had decided to make Capernaum his home. He had a house there. He talks about my roof at the end of verse 6. This is where he lived. This was home for him and perhaps his family and certainly those under his charge. And he was a centurion, as we've said. A centurion was a man that generally would be over a hundred soldiers, as the name suggests, and would be the equivalent, as one writer says, to a modern-day captain. Here he is, stationed in Galilee, and Luke brings to light this particular event. Now remember, when you're, when you're reading the Gospels, not every event is recorded. Not every move of the Savior, not every miracle is recorded for us. The Spirit of God shines a spotlight on certain events in order to teach us things that we need to grasp. And as we read these events, again, it's not so much about the centurion. It is about Christ. Luke is teaching, Luke is instructing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I always try to remember that. I know that I may forget at times, I don't like have it written on my wall, but certainly when I prepare in the Gospels, I'm trying to focus, I'm trying to remember that what Luke is doing is shining the spotlight on Christ, not on the centurion. And sometimes it's easy to get carried away with the centurion or with some of the other details that surround the narrative, but the focus really is upon Jesus Christ. That's where we want to focus tonight, but clearly other details come in that relate to this man and the events that are detailed. Tonight then, we're considering Christ's work for the centurion with great faith. Christ's work for the centurion with great faith. And there's three very simple points. We'll see that Christ saved him, that Christ sanctified him, and that Christ served him. Saved him, sanctified him, and served him. So let's look at the first point. Christ saved him. It seems evident to me that this man was a converted man. At some point he had come to faith, not merely an external form of Judaism, but a genuine faith in the promised Messiah. You may differ, but I think that is borne out by the passage and by Christ's exaltation of him, Christ's elevation rather perhaps is a better word, elevation of him in terms of his faith. This fact, I think, alone is remarkable. It is the first evidence, from what I can tell, if my memory is clear in 
going through all of this, is the first evidence of the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy at the birth of the Lord Jesus, when in Luke 2.32 he says he will be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Well, here we have it. Luke is writing to a Gentile, Theophilus. Now he's beginning to shine the spotlight on the fact that this is true, that this is a Savior not just for Israel, but for Gentiles. And as Gentile people tonight, it's good for us to be reminded and encouraged of this. Christ is a Savior of Gentiles as well. He is the Savior of the world. In that context, He is the Savior that saves men regardless of nationality, regardless of where they're from or what generation in which they live. What is even more remarkable is that this is not the only conversion of a Roman centurion. At the cross, you will remember in Luke 23, 47, we read then that now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And it may have been he was converted upon seeing the events of Christ and his crucifixion and all the events that surrounded it. We also know that in Caesarea, some years later, there was a centurion by the name of Cornelius, and we're told that he had to fetch for Peter, and we're told in Acts eleven fourteen, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Cornelius again was a devout man, but he was not a saved man. And Peter was given the privilege in opening the door more fully to the Gentiles of going to his house, preaching the gospel whereby Cornelius could be saved as well as those of his household. But this man is the first. He is the first Roman centurion. Other Roman centurions are mentioned as well, but certainly at least these three seem to have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And I believe Christ saved him at some point prior to this event. And although the details of his conversion are not given, that doesn't mean there's not evidence of it. And just stop and, and consider that. When we know people, when we get to know people, we don't have to be there at the point of their conversion to know that they're saved, or at least to have a knowledge as much as any man can know that a person is saved. We see evidence of it in their life. As we consider this morning, they are, they are converted unto God. When we see a person converted unto God, given to God, living for God, sold out for the cause of Christ, we can come to the conclusion, I think, this man is a believing man, this woman is a believing woman. And even for the individual, the individual that may have been converted early in life that fails to remember things, there's always in a family, there's always those siblings that seem to remember as far back as when their mother took them out of the hospital. And then the other sibling that, that can't remember like what happened the last week. And uh, then there's always debates about whether things actually happened the way they occurred or whether things were said the way that someone has I know what you said and I don't think I said that. And you know, you have the, a Barney about whether or not things transpired as they said. But there tends to be that. There tends to be within families some who are able to remember as almost as far back as they've been alive. In our family, I have just one sibling, and it would go to my sister, that ability to remember absolutely everything that anyone ever said or did going right back as far as, well, <laughs> as possible. It's not, it's not really good to live with someone like that, especially when they don't so much like to remind you of the good things you said, but they 
the bad things or the inappropriate things or whatever. Well, we might not be able to remember our conversion. You might not be able to remember exactly the details or what you said and the devil may come to you and, and torment you about your lack of memory in those details. But you don't have to remember. Your salvation does not depend upon your memory. If you exercise faith in Christ, if you love the Lord Jesus, if you're committed to Him, if you have an allegiance to Him, if your affections are drawn out after Him, if you feel towards the Son of God, you feel. And the Lord has done a work in your heart, whether you remember it or not. So Christ saved him. Then we consider, secondly, Christ sanctified him. And here we will spend most of our time this evening. Christ sanctified him. And it is evident by a number of things. First, evident by his love. And we turn to the passage. We read of the love of this man in a number of ways. We're told in verse 2, a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. Dear unto him. In other words, he was held in honor. In fact, you could put in the word precious. He was precious to him. He was precious to him. Now, we read over this, and it's easy to miss what is going on here. He was precious to him. What is going on? We have a Roman centurion giving regard, deep regard, and affection and love towards a slave. Within the context of Rome, this is someone who would have been just a piece of property. As far as the legal standing of this slave within this man's household, he had no legal standing. None at all. The law, at least the law of man, did not require this centurion to love this man the way he did. But he did. He loved him. He was, we read, precious to him. And that's the idea of the word servant. It's slave. You put that in right there. This is a man's slave and he loves him. How did he become a slave? I cannot tell you. The law of God is clear, Exodus 21, that man-stealing is a capital offense. I don't know if he was procured by that way or by another format. He became a slave. The Bible is not completely against all forms of slavery, regardless of what you hear today. And while it is not my intention tonight to get into the nuances of slavery, every single person who has ever taken out a loan or a mortgage has accepted the biblical definition of slavery. They have become a slave. The borrower is slave to the lender. You take out money, you become a slave. It's a different format. But everything is on the line. You make a certain calculated risk in taking that on, as the one who's lending does as well. And you become slave to the bank or to whoever the lender may be. You become a slave. Forms of slavery, not all forms of slavery, are wrong. There are nuances to it. And given that you may have lived in a time when there was no welfare, how would you get by? 
when you hit rock bottom? How do you get by when there's no crops that arise? How do you get by whenever you find yourself without a penny and a family to feed? One way would be to give yourself to a man of greater means who is able to look after you and your family while you serve them. And it could be a contract drawn up. And certainly Israel had their laws in relation to that. But what if the centurion had a view of slavery and had taken this man as a slave in a way that offends the modern assessment? How would the modern optics of this look if he was living today? I was pondering this. You know what's going on at present. You know all the different things. And as I was going over this passage, I thought, this, this, is, so, this is so relevant to our, our our ability to view things in a proper context. We live in a very intolerant age. One of the last emails I sent out to before we went on vacation related to the uh, removal of the statue of George Whitfield. That's grieving. Not because Whitfield's a perfect man. George Whitfield was far from a perfect man. But you cannot read the life of that man and not come under a sense of conviction of the devotion he had to Christ. And as you read the details of his treatment of slaves and his desire to evangelize slaves and bring them under the influence of the gospel and give them liberties and teach their masters how to treat them and all the rest of it, Yes, we might not agree with that which he found himself in, that which he accepted, and that which he utilized for the gospel's sake. We would not do that today. We wouldn't. But to take this little part of his life and disregard the rest as if there's nothing to learn from the man of good is a wrong perspective. It's an intolerance that does not agree with the view of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we shall see, Christ takes this centurion and elevates him because of his faith. There may have been areas of his life that were not perfectly agreeable to Scripture. And it may have been this very slave who had now come under the care of the centurion, it was brought about in a way that was scripturally illegal, scripturally wrong and immoral. That may or may not be the case, I can't say, but it most likely could have been the case. And yet Christ doesn't just disregard the testimony of the man. He doesn't just do away with him. And think of Hebrews 11. Go down through the list of Hebrews 11. Look at the men that are named there. Recognize the women that are put there. And look at their life. I don't know if you heard the news of the chief communications person of uh, Boeing. But that individual is, I guess, the head of all communications that go out of Boeing had to resign his post very recently. Why? Because 33 years ago, as a naval pilot, He wrote an article, he was 29 years of age, he wrote an article which was in opposition to women being on the front line 
in warfare. He was opposed to it. He wrote an article arguing the case simply. It's not a long article. It's not greatly in-depth, but he just is very pragmatic and sensible, at least from most perspectives. And someone unearthed this article from 33 years ago and was offended by it. And he had to leave his job. Imagine we started unearthing everything that offended us about everyone. No matter how far back it may go. Three decades or more. Let's go back. Let's look at your life. Let's see what you did or said. Imagine we get to the point, God forbid, but imagine we get to the point where technology is somehow able to process thought. And now you can read people's thoughts before they articulate them. And by the very thought, you can be held accountable and be removed from your job. This is the intolerance of our day. But Christ came to give mercy to men, to extend mercy to men, to not offer a salvation that depended upon the perfection of their life and the sensibilities with which they lived in perfect accordance with the Word of God. Certainly that is where He's moving them in His sanctifying influence. But you see, throughout Scripture, Christ elevating flawed people and encouraging us to highlight where they are good and learn from this critical view and perspective is, is even coming into the church. And we must be very careful. Would we satisfy our own demands for what is right? Are we prepared to judge people by the measure with which we are judged ourselves? The intolerance of our, death, of our day is the complete opposite of the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm always overwhelmed when I think of Him standing over the multitudes. Where we read of Him looking at the multitudes and having compassion on them. And there's thousands, a sea of people before Him. And He knows all their thoughts. All their deeds, all their words, and he has compassion. Helps give perspective when we look at one another, doesn't it? Imagine we did know every single detail there was to know about each of our lives. The little that we do know sometimes causes a breach within the relationship, doesn't it? And yet the little that we know is nothing in comparison to what Christ knows about us. And yet he looks on the multitude and he has compassion. There's a day of justice coming. A day where it will be perfectly fair and just. But Christ in his incarnation stands before the multitudes of people and he has compassion on them. 
He's not thinking about every wrongdoing that's done by every single life in the sea of people that are before him, even though he's capable of honing in on all those details. He sees need. He sees a sea of sinners that need grace and mercy. This centurion had a love for the welfare of people. This man was perhaps, in terms of society, he was the lowest. He may have had certain rank as a slave, I don't know. But as society would see him, he was right down there. And yet, the centurion loves him. How Christ-like of him. How Christ-like of him to, to see the lost in his household and love them. Consider them precious. Is that not what Christ has done for us? Are we not slaves in bondage to our sin? Are we not a people far more desperate than we can even begin to understand? We think ourselves to be something, but really we are nothing. It doesn't matter how we're classed in terms of society, upper class, middle class, lower class, whatever. It doesn't matter. To the infinity of the person of Christ looking down upon us, we're nothing. We are nothing. We are the lowest of the low. Like this centurion, or perhaps I should say, as the Spirit had worked in this centurion's life, it had made him like Christ in condescending to men of low degree. We should have the same attitude. Be very careful. Be very careful how you view men. I could take time to go to James and argue the case of the partiality that was evident even in the first century. See a man with his gay apparel, he comes in, he's apparently got wealth, the appearance of wealth, and you pay attention to him, and there's someone else who comes in in modest apparel. Poverty, perhaps, is clearly marked upon him, and we have less, less of an interest in them. The Lord hates it. His love for the welfare of people, even those of low degree. His love for the witness of Israel. Read of that as well. Because we're reading from verse 3, when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. He loveth our nation. The text speaks of his love for ethnic Israel. He had a love for this people. He loved Israel because Israel was uniquely blessed. The centurion came from a land of paganism. And he enters into Israel. He's there in Galilee. He becomes acquainted more fully with what is the Jewish faith. And perhaps if we were to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, he, he comes, becomes aware of certain things. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul writes of the, the Jewish nation, he says in Romans 9 verse 3, that he could wish himself a curse from Christ, 
for my brethren, the kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Now you take that list, you focus on it, you meditate upon it, and you see these privileges that were unique to Israel. So you're an outsider, you come in, you see all of this, you begin to learn of these particular privileges, adoption, the glory of God, that is the glory of God's presence in their midst, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the Levitical service, the promises given to them, the fathers, they were all their fathers, went back to Abraham, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Messiah came. The one promised to be the deliverer of all people comes through Israel. And so this this Roman comes into Israel, begins to learn truths like this, and and sees this nation is uniquely favored. God, the God of heaven, has had unique blessings for them. And so, as the elders say, he loveth our nation. I think it's safe to assume that he could say with Paul what he later says in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I think he thought that way. And we'll see in just a moment part of perhaps what have, may have been influencing him in his perception of Capernaum and the needs that were there. But when I thought about this love for Israel that he had, he loveth our nation. I thought about how we have to be careful in how we understand that love for the nation. We are to love the people from Israel, the Jews. Scripture is clear on that. We're to have a love for them. And yet, it should never veneer over the spiritual reality of the nation. There are preachers in this land that would have you believe that the Jews, by even though they continue to reject Jesus as the Messiah, will still be saved and are still saved. So long as they are faithful to Judaism, even though they reject Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, they are saved and they are wrong. Profoundly wrong. Not just by my observation of it, but by Scripture and what Jesus himself says. I will not take time this evening to turn to John chapter 8, where the Lord Jesus himself details the lost condition of those who profess themselves to be of Abraham's seed. And yet, he's saying to them, if you were of Abraham, you would believe me. But because of the rejection of Jesus Christ, they were of their father, the devil. The spiritual position of the land must be taken into consideration. Paul says of them them himself that they have a zeal but not according to knowledge. And the rejection of Jesus Christ is crucial. It's not something we can glaze over, say that's a minor issue. This is fundamental to the faith. This is how men are saved, how they view Jesus Christ. You're wrong in that. You're wrong eternally in a way that is irreparable and irrecoverable. 
Unbelieving Jews are cut off from the olive tree, according to Romans 11. Believing Gentiles are grafted in. Why we should pray for and expect a measure of their grafting in again, I believe that sometimes Christians go too far in their political support for a nation that has more individual enmity for Jesus Christ than perhaps any other nation on the planet. The average Jew has more animosity toward Jesus Christ than any other person living. And you can understand why. How do you feel about someone who tries to usurp the place of Jesus Christ? What time would you have for a person who comes and says, I am the Messiah, and they're not Jesus, the Son of God? You have no time for that at all. You're intolerant right there. You can't have any time for that. And this is their perception. They're still awaiting a Messiah. Jesus is a usurper. And so they're not, they're not, they're not indifferent to this. They despise Jesus Christ. Their logical conclusion of their faith is to despise him as a usurper. Thus, I issue these words as a warning, simply that our love for Israel must be tapered by Scripture. And you read Romans 9 through 11 very carefully. And Paul has already wrestled with, but is now putting it before others to wrestle, the sovereignty of God in the calling of individuals in his election. And his electing grace is not specific to a people depending on the family line that they have. But Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. And having that in view means we must be very careful, and I say this in relation to the politics of the day, that are so desperate to have people on one side or the other. You're either pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian, and it's trying to get a bias. And God's people must be very careful, I say, to not enter into this political black and white, for against one side or the other. Because God has an elected people among all nations. He has people in Israel he has saved and will yet save. He has people in Palestine he has saved and will yet save. And all the surrounding nations are a people that need evangelized. They need Christ. And while God has a particular purpose for Israel and has bestowed upon them tremendous blessings and privileges, and has made it clear in His Word that there's still a future expectation of a gathering in of this people so uniquely blessed. Yet, it is not to the exclusion of our heart, burden, desire, love for other people of other ethnicities. They all need Christ. Christ is the great uniter. He is the Israel. He is the one who creates a nation under himself. He gathers them all in, whether Jew or Gentile. Makes them his own. So be careful. When this man, living as he was in the day in which he was living, and he loved 
When he loveth our nation, he's looking at a nation that uniquely has the Word of God and all the privileges that we've already expressed from Romans chapter 9. And while we should still have a love for that nation, it is not to the exclusion of our affection for other people from other territories and districts. Thirdly, his love for the work of God, his love for the welfare of people, even people of low degree, his love for the witness of Israel, and his love for the work of God. Verse 5, it goes on to say, not only does he loveth our nation, but he hath built us a synagogue. Why build a synagogue? <laughs> this is like one man coming in and building a church, right? Building a building. I'll, I'll do it. I'll bear the expense. I'll build the building. <laughs> So he's a man of means, clearly. And sometimes in the work of God, such people are, exist and, and are sacrificial to the degree that they would do things like this. But, but I, I thought about this. I said, what was the motivation for him to build a synagogue? Now, sometimes there would have been a political motivation. He wants to be accepted among the Jews as the one who's placed by Rome to be there. If he wants to make friends with people then it would be good for him to contribute to the cause, a religious cause that would encourage them in some way. So you could see a, a cynical perspective may look at this and say this was a political move again to garner him acceptance among the people by doing this. But, but clearly by the evidence that is given to us, this was not his motivation. This man has a love for people and a love for the cause. And as I meditated upon his generosity to build a synagogue, and then thought of what Scripture says about Capernaum. For example, Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, when Jesus says, Thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. This is an unbelieving people. And I can see this Roman centurion coming in as sometimes occurs even in church at times when you have a church existing and everyone, at least the vast majority of people, have been saved or brought up in the church. And then someone comes in who has had no experience of church, no knowledge of the gospel, no experience of all the blessings and the privileges, and then they're converted. And they're looking at the sleepy existence of many other believers and they're wondering, what's wrong with these people? And the Roman centurion may have come to Capernaum, understood all the blessings that, that had been bestowed upon this particular region, and he's enlightened to it, he's enamored with it, he embraces it fully, but he realizes he's living among a people that don't know the blessings that they have. And they're full of unbelief, they have no concern really for spiritual things. And he thinks to himself, what do they need? Now tell me, what does a people need who are an unbelieving people. They need, more than anything else, they need the Word of God. And while I am using a little bit of imagination here, I can see this centurion seeing what they need is the Word of God put before them. I will build a synagogue. That synagogue will have its teachers, its rabbis, and the Word will go out, and that that under God may make the difference. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So maybe that was part of his burden. That was his motivation. 
And it's wonderful. It's wonderful when the church is blessed with people of means like this who are able to just build the church, able to do this. You know, sometimes people who of means get a bad rap. You know, I was criticizing them for their, for their money or their wealth, and people look to them, and they're very critical of them. But, but, but the church, not that it needs, but God uses men of means to make distinct and significant differences in the work of God. And it's not many mighty, not many noble, but God has some of tremendous means at times within a church or within the work of God, and He uses them and their means to do extraordinary things. A lady once said to a preacher, as she was giving to a particular cause or need, she said that water is free, but it takes money to pipe it into our homes. That's the same with the gospel to some degree. The gospel is free, but it takes resources to reach the unreached peoples of the world, to continue the work of God. And this man was a blessing to his community with his liberality and abundance that God had blessed him with, and he used it to be generous to the work of God. So we have seen, as Christ sanctified him, it was evident by his love, but it's also evident by his humility. So again, going back to verse 3, when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. I don't know what was going through the mind of the centurion and his sense of unworthiness to go and meet him himself, as later it records. But perhaps there was a sense in sending these religious leaders that, well, he's a, Jesus is a religious leader, I'll send other religious leaders, and, and he will respond. He will pay attention to their status, to their position. It's not just an average person. It's not a stranger but he will recognize them as religious leaders, no doubt by their garb or some other evidence that they were religious leaders, and he will listen to them. So he's looking to get his attention. And he sends these religious leaders to make known this need that was upon his heart. And they go, and the very fact that these religious leaders were willing to run an errand like this for a Roman, again, is amazing. When <laughs> They didn't even want Romans in the land, but now they're running errands for this man. I mean, he had tremendous credibility in their midst. And their opinion of him is, <laughs> again, you just, you can't believe what you're reading. If you were in the context when you understood what the average Jew thought of the average Roman, and Roman occupation, they come and they besought him instantly, saying, He was worthy for whom he should do this. He was worthy. Worthy. This is their evaluation of him. He is worthy. And their evaluation of him was, in some ways, basically driven by the same motivation that Jesus has recently addressed in this Sermon on the Plain. In Luke chapter 6, verse 32, you remember what Jesus said about loving our enemies? And... 
the difference between the kind of love he calls us to versus the love that's known in the world. Verse 32, if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners also do even the same. They had a love for this man because of what he had done. So it was a natural love based upon the generosity and his influence upon the community. They love him and they consider him worthy. They viewed his life by the particular kindness that he had shown to him, to them rather. And essentially what they're saying is, you owe this man favor. I think that's a sense of what they're saying. He is worthy. You owe him. He has been so gracious, so kind to our nation. You owe him this. You owe him this favor. Now when you think of that, let it be plainly known. I think most of you understand this, but let me underline it. <laughs> First, we are all sinners. Every single person is a sinner. There may be degrees of sin, but every person is a sinner. Every single person on the earth. And God owes a favor to no sinner. No exceptions. He does not owe favors to men. I remember hearing an illustration by one renowned preacher and he was trying to get across a sense of, of fairness and justice so people would understand what it is to be fair or just. And he was teaching a class and in that class he had set a, you know, various papers and the papers had to be in on a, by a certain date and if they didn't, immediately the best mark they would get would be a C. So after the first paper was set, a couple of people came along and said, we just need a couple more days just to get finished. And he said, okay. And they came in, you know, and that was fine. They weren't marked down because of that. Second paper was issued with the date given. And this time there was maybe 20 or so that came and said, we just need a little more time. Just, to get, just give us two more days or so, we'll get it in. And he said, okay. And the third paper that was set, there was at least double that amount, if not more, more than half the class that came before him with the same thing. He just, just didn't get it done in time, and he just give us a couple more days. And he said, no. And the whole cry of them all, he said, in unison, that's not fair. It's a wonderful illustration of our misconception of fairness. On the other two occasions, he was being gracious. He was being merciful. On the third occasion, he was being fair. I set the date. You knew it. You knew the standard. You knew what was set. This is what was given. That is fairness. The other times I was extending grace to you. And so it is with people's mind. They, they think in similar fashion. They think that, that God owes me something. They, in fact, would ask for God, be fair to me. Be fair to me. I have lived a good life. I have done X, Y, and Z, whatever religious standard that they think in their head is what God demands of them. And they think, if God's fair, He will accept me. No. Fairness for a sinner is judgment. 
It is the execution of the wrath of God upon sin. Fairness is damnation. Fairness is to be lost. So if you're here tonight and you've built a foundation upon assuming that God being fair means that He will accept you because you're a reasonably good person, you are worthy. And your friends may say concerning you, this person is worthy, Lord. They're worthy of heaven. I remember when I was saved, there was a friend of mine, a long-term friend, a girl that I'd went through school with and known for many years. And I told her my conversion and being saved. I remember what she said, but you don't do bad things. That was her response, you don't do bad things. Her evaluation was, I'm, I'm fine. Of course, a part, I can't say for sure, but I can see perhaps a motivation behind that is, I don't want to judge my life by how you're judging your life. Because given the fact that you perhaps weren't involved in some of the sins that I'm involved in, then if I was to evaluate myself by the standard you're now evaluating yourself, then I'm lost. So they want to change the standards to suit themselves. But God has a standard. When men come and say He is worthy, they don't understand. They don't understand God. They don't understand the gospel. And they're lost. These are religious leaders. (laughs) These are men who are meant to know the Word. Just like many of the religious leaders today. You go into some churches where they have no gospel, no preaching against sin, no understanding of the cross. You go to funerals and you have even men who have exercised no faith, expressed no testimony in Christ, ushered into heaven by their language because they determine He is worthy. The centurion, of course, from verse 6 onwards, sends a second delegation. Jesus went with them. That's with the religious leaders. When he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but saying a word, and my servant shall be healed. Now, there's different ideas as to the motivation for this second delegation being sent to Jesus Christ, but it seems clear to me, and again, you're reading into it a little, but my assumption is, as Jesus makes his way toward the centurion's house, someone of the party runs ahead to let the centurion know he's coming. Maybe he was even given that specific order. If he decides to come, come and let me know before he gets here so I can make ready. But in doing so, the man comes in. He asks him, well, he said, he's coming, he's on his way. He said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, well, the elders went and said that, that you're worthy for this to be done. And then, oh, hold on, hang on a minute here. And then he sends another delegation, go and tell him. Go and tell him that, that language, as I'm sure they were seeking to be respectful, but that is not the case. That's not how I view myself. I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. The use of the word worthy seems to indicate some understanding of what had been said in the initial dialogue. This is an expression of his humility. 
This man understands the gospel. He understands the Word of God. He understands himself. He is not making great expressions of his religious activity. He doesn't respond by saying when he finds out that they, oh, they, they told him that you built the synagogue and oh good, good, maybe that will garner favor with him. No, he, he's not into that. He's not courting praise. This man understands his position before God. I am not worthy. And beloved, we can never stray from that opinion of ourselves. You are bombarded, as I've said on other occasions, you are bombarded today with the temptation to think highly of yourself. You're a wonderful person. You're capable of anything. And yada, 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 all of that. Now, I'm not against goals, ambitions that are rightly tapered by the gospel. But the encouragement and the promotion of self-exaltation and trying to court a sense of our achievement before others and even before God it's a complete misunderstanding of who we really are. And the world may think you're wonderful, but before God, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. Get it into your heart. Get it into your head. You are lost. Your worth before God is not by impressing Him with your deeds and your accolades as men perceive them. Your value before God what will find you with acceptance before him is your faith in Christ and presenting Christ as the reason for your acceptance. A mediator between God and men. One to stand between you and God and his justice. Do you miss that? You miss heaven. You must have a deep understanding, a full comprehension of your unworthiness. And what is remarkable, again, when you read church history and you see some of the most devout individuals that have given a record of their walk with God, you find them repeatedly understanding their unworthiness. It is unanimous in Scripture. It is a constant echo of men and women who have walked with God as they deepen in their fellowship with Christ. As they come closer to Christ, they have a closer understanding, or more deep understanding, I should say, of their unworthiness before God. And while it is not the intent of the language of the text, when it tells us that when he was now not far from the house, that Jesus was now closer to the man, while it's not the intent to spiritualize that in such a way as to show us Jesus comes near to the centurion, the centurion then has an idea of a greater sense of his own unworthiness, there is an application there. As the proximity of you and Christ diminishes, as your fellowship intensifies, as you get closer to the Lord, there will be this outcome, as I think Scripture bears out and history proves. There will be a deeper awareness of your unworthiness. This man had a right view of himself, his poverty before God. And no one but the believer has a right comprehension of their sin and a biblical view of themselves as believers that understand scripturally what they are before God. And you contrast this with the motivational jargon of the day. It's 
worlds apart. And you must saturate yourself in Scripture or you will be taken away. You will, you will go astray. You get yourself so involved in this, this hyper-motivational day in which we live, you will not appreciate the messages that come from this pulpit. You won't. What I trust is true. The vast majority of the time isn't that you are just not liking me or whatever. It's that you are actually rejecting what Scripture says about you. You don't want to hear it. You just want the positive. You want your ego stroked. You want to feel better about yourself. I'll tell you the way to feel better about yourself. Is get as low as you can go before God. And then the value of yourself will be not in how you view yourself, but in how you view your Savior. And you fill your mind with the glories and the splendor of the Son of God. And you recognize your union in Him. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter what attainments they say are significant and you should go after. You will be perfectly content in the understanding that I am loved as Christ is loved. My union in Christ is everything. And the lower you go, the more value you place on Christ, the less you're placing on yourself, the more you're being turned toward the mediator. And therefore, the more confidence you have. Because it's not in you. It's in him. This man understood this. Thirdly, the sanctifying work of Christ is evident by his faith. I'll be very quick. Verses 7 through 9. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." The sanctifying work of Christ in his life is evident by his faith. Indeed, this is the standout grace of this passage. He has such confidence in the Lord's ability. You see that even from verse 3. When he heard of Jesus, he sent. When he heard of Jesus. That's the answer for the predicament. This is the person for the job. This is the one for this hour. No doubt he had heard about Christ, he had heard about his works, he had been in Capernaum, we know that already. He had done works in Capernaum, of which the, those in Nazareth wanted him to repeat. So this is all being noised abroad, he becomes aware of this as Jesus comes back into Capernaum. He says, that's the man we need, send for him. So you see his faith evident really there. But two things, very briefly. His faith determined Christ's word was sufficient. His faith determined Christ's word was sufficient. Verse 7, but say in a word. There's the sufficiency of Christ's word. Say in a word. What's filling his mind here? What does this man understand? I put it to you, this man understands the one that he is called for. He is the son of God. And if he rightly apprehends Jesus Christ... 
then he understands this is the one who said in, in the beginning when God created the heaven and the earth that spoke everything into existence in the following narrative that we have in Genesis 1. This is the same one. That he holds all things by the word of his power. That he speaks the word simply and out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, the worlds are framed. Others just see a Nazarene. The centurion sees the Son of God. Say the word only. You who created the heavens and the earth, you who uphold all things by your power and omnipotence, just say the word. The word is sufficient. But his faith determined Christ's word was sovereign. It was also not just sufficient, but sovereign. My servant shall be healed. His will is the will of a king. He speaks the word and it is done. My servant shall be healed. There is the sovereignty of Christ's word. He believed in the power of Christ. Now compare this. Compare this man's faith. And this is why Christ then turns aside to the people and says, Look at this. I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Look, have a look at this. Because even Martha in John 11. Martha. The devoted Martha. The faithful servant Martha had a problem with the Lord Jesus in John eleven twenty one, 21, when Martha said unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, that, there's a measure of faith there. She believed Jesus can keep her brother alive, keep him from death. There's a measure of faith there, but it's not the faith of this man. This man doesn't need the Lord to be there. This man understands that this is the omnipresent God. He's everywhere. In his deity, he fills the heavens and the earth. He just speaks a word. My servant shall be healed. Do we have such a lofty view of our God? Or is this not part of our problem? Now we imagine that Jesus Christ is smaller than he really is. We're like Mary and Martha. We as particularly Martha, we, 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 we know the Lord can do things, but, but we limit him. If you have been here, and we have other certain limitations that we place upon God. If only God had done this or done that. And we, 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 we don't comprehend the full power of Jesus Christ. And when we pray, we're filled with unbelief. This man, this, this centurion, this Gentile, becomes an example to all of Israel. The only other time, if I'm right in understanding this, the only time, other time where we have Jesus Christ marveling is in Mark 6, verse 6, when he marvels at their unbelief. He's amazed at the unbelief of people. Here, however, it is in the positive. He is marveling at the faith of this man. And there you see how faith has a, has a very significant influence, if we can look at it, humanly speaking, upon the emotions of our Lord. He is moved by our faith. He is influenced by faith. There's certain emotions drawn out of him by our faith. So when he says great unbelief, he sees it on display, he marvels, he's amazed at, at their unbelief. But then when he sees great faith, he is amazed at the greatness of the faith. And you see a focus on this after Christ dies, before he ascends. 
You see him focusing on this, even with his disciples, with all of their faults. The only thing that he upbraids, the one thing that bothers them, or bothers him, is their unbelief. The Lord will put up with a lot, but he is intolerant of unbelief because unbelief fundamentally is questioning God. And beloved, therefore, of the greatest grace we need among the graces that every believer should know and be bestowed with is greater faith. It's a good prayer to go home with, isn't it? Increase my faith. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The final point, and I just mentioned it, I'll not detail it, was that Christ served him. Verses 9 and 10, he marveled, he makes mention of the faith. Verse 10, they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. He does as he desired. Faith is something we ought not to be content to live without. And you look down through the graces of this man, his love for men of low degree, his love for the people of God, his love for the work of God, his humility. You see such love and humility and you, say to, you have to say to yourself that it is to such broken, loving people that God often graces with great faith. People truly broken. People who have no confidence in their own ability. As lofty as they may be in the eyes of the world, as much power as they may have. I can say go and he goes and come and he comes and do this and he does it. But with all that, he doesn't view himself as a great man. He's a broken man. A humble man. A man who loves in the way that Christ even taught us to love in the previous portion. Condescending rather than judgmental. And this is a man he bestows by grace great faith. By faith you say to this mountain remove yonder and it shall be done. Do we understand the significance of faith? Are we content with the measure that we have of it? It's enough to get you into heaven. I fold my arms and leave it there. Or are there people in your family? in your neighborhood, in your place of work. If I can just step back for a moment and suggest to you the Lord would be encouraging you, believe me for these things. Believe me for these miracles. Believe me in relation to the salvation of this person 
the need in this area. Stop doubting. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Young person, you want to change the world? Don't focus so much upon your own achievements or what you are wanting to achieve in this world. You will do far more significant things in this world if you are a person of great faith. people whose lives are teetering on the brink of eternity like this centurion's servant. He's teetering on the brink of eternity. And he is delivered. Why? Because his master believed. Oh, no doubt he had tried the physicians. He sent for this doctor and that doctor and this remedy and that remedy all to no avail. Faith in Christ. Faith is what made the difference. If only we could have a little peek into the two paths of our lives. Path A. I exert myself by the greatest powers that I can muster to achieve and do everything I can in the flesh and see how that changes the world. Or path B, I give myself more wholly to Christ. Get on my knees daily, beg for more faith, live it out before a perishing world. And see how that makes a difference. Lord, deliver us from the allurement of the things of this world and a false ambition for things of apparent value but little real significance. Increase our faith. Help us to see that the greatness is not about us. The greatness is in Thee. And power belongeth unto God. So take the weakest even in our midst and fill them with great faith. May young and old, mature and immature, grow in their faith in Christ. And should there be one here tonight that has zero faith and no trust in Christ whatsoever, may they see the pointlessness of their existence. And this night bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords and embrace him simply by faith. Hear our prayers. 
And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.